I'm Erin Holt, and this is the Functional Nutrition Podcast, where we lean into intuitive functional medicine. We look at how diet, our environment, our emotions, and our beliefs all affect our physical health. This podcast is your full-bodied, well-rounded resource. I've got over a decade of clinical experience, and because of that, I've got a major bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model. They're both failing so many of us. But functional medicine isn't the panacea that it's made out to be either. We've got some work to do, and that's why creating a new model is my life's work. I believe in the ripple effect, so I founded the Functional Nutrition Academy, a school and mentorship for practitioners who want to do the same. This show is for you if you're looking for new ways of thinking about your health and you're ready to be an active participant in your own healing. You'll get things here that you won't get other places. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. I would love for you to follow the show, rate, review, and share because you never know whose life you might change. And of course, keep coming back for more. Now give me the mic so I can take it away. Hello, my friends. I am really excited for you all to get to hear today's conversation. I got to sit down and chat with Dr. Maya Shetreet. She is an MD. She's a neurologist. She's an herbalist, an urban farmer. She's the author of The Dirt Cure. So I I share with her, and you'll hear me say that I found that book a few years back. And I absolutely believe it is recommended reading for everybody, whether you're a practitioner, um, if you're in the health field, or just somebody who is interested in, you know, health and human bodies. Um, Really, really, really great book. So I've been a super fan since I read that book six years ago, and it's just a real honor to be able to sit down and chat with her. She does have a new book, The Master Plant Experience, The Science, Safety, and Sacred Ceremony of Psychedelics. And this conversation definitely leans more in that direction. We talk about plant medicine. Um, Dr. Maya has been featured in the New York Times, The Telegraph, NPR, Sky News, The Dr. Oz Show, and more. She's the founder of the Terrain Institute, where she teaches earth-based programs for transformational healing, including professional training programs for psychedelic-assisted approaches. She works and studies with indigenous communities and healers from around the world, and she's a lifelong student of ethnobotany, plant healing, and the sacred. So yeah, she's good stuff, and this was a great conversation. Some of you will pick up on the fact that I share with her something that I haven't yet shared here or really anywhere publicly, which is that I've been experimenting um, with some microdosing, and um, I I expect that some of you will be interested to hear more about that. And you all know how I get down. I'm a pretty open book when it comes to my own health and healing journey, and I do plan to share more about that with you all when the time is right. But for now, you get to sink your teeth into this conversation with Dr. Maya. I'm super excited to have you here. Thank you for being here. It is my pleasure. I'm I'm super happy to be here. I have like a little bit like fangirl status with you. Um, I just have been a super fan for, I was saying six years ago, I read The Dirt mm-hmm. Cure, which is your first book. And that book is like, I recommend it to everybody. I have a practitioner training. I recommend it to all practitioners. It's like it's like an absolute like must read in my opinion. But it, the funny thing about this, I love I love me some good synchronicities. I read this book six years ago. 
in September, like to the to the date. And I remember this because my husband and I were at uh, visiting the Azores for our fifth wedding anniversary. So I know it was six years ago. And then I started my podcast the next week. So it's just funny that you're coming that you're coming on the podcast. The other like little synchronicity is that um, I started microdosing with psilocybin six weeks ago. Mm. And before that, I had been like very resistant to the idea, not for other people, just for me. And gosh, it's been an amazing, incredible experience. Mm. So I'm just, this is the best time to talk to you. I'm so excited. <laughs> so, uh, thank you again for being here. I, I would kind of love to know... Um, I know you have a new book, The Master Plant Experience, which I would love to hear more about. And I think that's probably a lot of what we'll be talking about today. But what made you write The Dirt Cure? And mm -hmm. like, what was the impetus for writing that book? Well, <clears throat> um, I had already gone through a lot of um, food-related awakenings, food health-related awakenings. And this was at a time when really nobody was talking about that in the mainstream. Like Michael Pollan's book had come out not that long before. Um, it was very galvanizing, obviously. A lot of people like had a lot of awakenings around it. Um, and I had just done this deep dive into food because my son, um, my youngest son, had gotten sick with what looked like asthma and also some neurological symptoms. He was a year old. And um, we realized after, you know, 10 months of people just saying, oh, he's an allergic kid. Oh, this is just the way it is, et cetera, et cetera. Except he was sick all the time um, that he was allergic to soy. And that took me into GMOs. And that took me into why is so, soy so, you know, allergic for so many people. And, you know, where does our food come from? What are we putting on it? Um, you know, looking at kind of the whole picture of how inflammatory our food system has become and how out of connection and out of touch we were with um, kind of everything around us, including, you know, our own um, gut garden, right? The rainforest of our bodies, which was like the microbiome. And a lot of people um, at that time also, that was like in the scientific literature, but it was definitely not like, you know, on the front of the New York Times yet. Um, so all of that was really really instigated by me trying to heal my son, going into the scientific literature, and then seeing how much it was helping my patients. Like every day I was like, why am I seeing actual miracles happening with people who are severely ill in certain cases, even um, where nothing's helping them and changing their diet, you know, whether it was for migraines, whether it was for seizures, whether it was for um, massive behavioral issues, like seeing true transformation. Um, you know, I was like, I've got to write about this. I have to share this with the world. And, um, you know, because this message is bigger than me. Absolutely. And you were seeing primarily at the time, and um, you're a medical doctor, you're a neurologist. So you were seeing people coming to you for that. Yeah. And I was, I'm an adult and pediatric neurologist, but at the time, um, I was seeing mainly kids. So this was seeing the effect of um, food, you know, and in sup and supplements in certain cases in kids who were coming with 
uh, oftentimes severe neurologic, but not always severe um, neurologic conditions. And actually food and supplements in many cases outdid pharmaceuticals um, in terms of just regulating all systems, right? I mean, in other words, like we have this sledgehammer approach, which is very like, you know, heavy duty. And this kind of also can go into the microdosing conversation eventually, because we think in our very material oriented system that everything has to be heavy duty to work, mm. you know? And it turns out whether it's food, medication, psychedelics, like a lot of us are very sensitive creatures, you know? And that's actually, I think, the norm, not the exception. And so changing diet is like changing the terrain, right? It's like we are actually, and and this is more and more something I think we're understanding with like quantum physics, quantum biology, every cell in our body is intelligent. Every cell in our body has a memory and um, has an intention in a sense. So, you know, I think what we're learning now with quantum physics and quantum biology, which is kind of the extension of quantum physics in our own physiology, is that every cell in our body is intelligent and every cell actually has a memory. And cellular memory is what causes a lot of the dysfunction that we experience in our health, in our mental health, in our lives, um, because our cells, uh, they remember, you know, these uh, instigating experiences like little T or capital T trauma. It doesn't matter. It can be the big, the big stuff, or it can be, you know, being bullied by like a local kid or, you know, our caretaker being late to pick us up from school every day, whatever it is, like our cells in some way know that and remember that. And part of like our job in terms of healing our bodies is to get ourselves out of this cell danger response and into this place of what we call salugenesis. And this is actually a term coined by Dr. Robert Navio, who was the one who talked about cell danger, that our cells actually function differently when they feel unsafe. Um, and cells don't care if the instigator is physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, ecological. Um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to just be one thing. The cells will translate it into um, cell danger. And then they function in this um, defensive way, right? Rather than in this growth and um, kind of optimal health and function. So food is one way, you know, nourishment, literal nourishment and how the food comes into our bodies, like the way we eat together, how we feel about food, all of those things um, are really, really important when it comes to getting our cells, our, our universe of cells that live in our body, the community that we are, you know, that make up Maya or Erin, um, to feel, ooh, like I'm okay. I can, I can do this. Right. And that's when cells go from, you know, from danger to this salugenesis, this health promoting optimal function, quote unquote optimal. I kind of don't like that word because I feel like let's not, we don't need to aspire to anything. We can just be, um, <clears throat> but you know, and food allergies and migraines and gut issues and all of that have a lot to do with being in cell danger, you know, even autoimmunity, even cancer. It's like cells are in this defensive mode and certainly things like depression and eating disorders and OCD and all that stuff come from this fundamental issue of our cells not being things, but cells as beings, cells as intelligent beings. 
So cells have memory and so they can mem they have a memory of everything that happens in our lifetime. What about pre-lifetime? What about womb? What about pre-womb? Like genealogical, ancestral, like where, how does that fit into the picture as well? So preconception, prenatal, absolutely, right? That we exist in that time. Um, so that's, I don't even think controversial, but okay. now it's not even controversial to look back at ancestry and lineage because we understand that epigenetics, and I'll explain what that is, although probably people know, um, right? But like we think of our, you know, our, the code that determines who we are as our genetics, our DNA. And DNA doesn't change very much in general, at least we hope not. Um, but the way it's read, right? And I age myself by saying like, imagine little yellow sticky notes all over, right? I still think of it that way. It's like, you know, but putting little markers all over saying, okay, this happens here, this stops here, this is, right? It's like, why do certain people get their period at a certain time, you know, or a certain age, like someone's eight, someone's 15, or why do people go bald or what, right? Like all of those timing things, for example, those are expressed through ancestry where um, something that happened to our great, great grandmother, you know, she uh, lived through a famine or a war or something wonderful, right? Like she had this wonderful, um, very nourished life, like that translates to who we are today. Um, both good or bad, you know, quote unquote. And then on the other side of it, and what's really cool about this is that unlike DNA, which doesn't change very much, it's just like, that's what we get. Um, actually, epigenetics are reversible. So what you do today, right now, with those cellular memories, with those epigenetics, whether it's with food, whether it's with um, physical activity, whether it's with love, whether it's with spiritual work, right? All of these different aspects that can shift your epigenetics. And I think of that as a way that we are able to heal our ancestors in a sense. Um, and we can kind of heal the generations forward, right? Like when we do that work and be in conversation with our own cells, our body, our epigenetics, we actually um, are kind of healing generations in both directions. Okay, podcast buddies, I want to take a sec to shout out Organifi Green Apple Juice. Yum. It's like a healthy apple juice with all the benefits of the original green juice. If you don't love the taste of the original green juice, this one is for you. It's made with organic apples that are hand-picked, Golden Delicious, Northern Spy, Macintosh, Ida Red, and Empire. So real deal apples are up in this blend. It also has the added benefit of 600 milligrams of ashwagandha, which is an adaptogen that helps the body cope with stress and can balance out cortisol levels. It also has really potent and nourishing green plants like moringa, spirulina, and chlorella. It's so good. You're going to absolutely love it. Order it today. Head to Organifi.com forward slash funk, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash funk, and you can save 20% off your order with the code F-U-N-K. Are you trying to get healthier? Maybe you want to eat better or move your body more, but you struggle with willpower, productivity, or focus. 
If so, I've got you. My brand new sponsor, Neurohacker, combines 28 of their most research-backed nootropic ingredients in their ultimate brain fuel formula called Qualia Mind. It's been changing people's lives for years now. It's been changing mine for a few months, which is why I called them up and say, hey, do you want to sponsor the show? I love what your product is doing for my brain. Qualia Mind has really helped my focus, my mood, my willpower, my drive. I love it. All the ingredients really work in synergy with one another to support optimal brain function pathways, and you will feel it. If you don't, you can get your money back. Try it for 100 days, and if it doesn't work, if you're not totally stoked, get your money back. See what it can do for your mind. Go to neurohacker.com forward slash funk to save $100 off and 15% off of your first purchase when you use code FUNK. That's neurohacker.com forward slash F-U-N-K to try Qualia Mind with the code FUNK. I would love to hear about, um, you talk about the power of plants. I feel like right now we are in this time where plants are being so demonized in some circles Mm. and it's like, you know, veggies, eating veggies are going to kill you. You know, like it's so bad for your gut. We've have all these, um, just like all these compounds and chemicals in plants. And I, I'm like, I, I'm aware of that. I recognize that. I posted, a, I was making a kale salad a couple months ago and somebody's like, I can't believe you eat kale oxalates. I'm like, I'm good. I know about the oxalates. I'm surviving and thriving despite all the oxalates. Like, I'm okay, everybody. Calm down, settle down. But then it's like when I, whenever I talk to um, an herbalist in the way that you are able to talk about plants, I just feel this like, calm, like this peace come over my entire body versus when I hear people talk about like plants will kill you. It's like that creates this frequency in my body that doesn't feel good. And then I hear somebody who has like worked with plants and understands plants and I'm like, ah, like I just want to go outside, you know? (laughs) And so I would love for you to speak into the power of plants, whether that's um, herbs or herbal medicine or food that we might consume, mushrooms, like the whole gamut of, of plants. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I'm going to bring kind of, I, I am someone who's sensitive to oxalates. And so <laughs> um, it so happens, right? So I've had to really navigate. I, you know, I think we're all, we've all been conditioned to think like plants are so good for us and, you know, vegetables and fruit and whatever. And then like every other day, like you're saying, somebody comes along to demonize it. There's some science that says, this is bad. This is bad. This is bad. And when I was writing my most recent book, you know, the master plan experience about master plants, which I can explain what they are. Um, I, st- I got a really new, interesting understanding Um, of plants, which is not that they're just our friends, right? So master plants are plants that alter us, um, alter our consciousness, but it doesn't mean they are always psychedelic, although that book is primarily about psychedelic master plants. So all psychedelic plants, including mushrooms, you know, are master plants, but master plants can also include things like coffee or cacao, right? Like we will go quite a bit out of our way in life, right? To get our coffee or to get our chocolate, just as examples, right? These are consciousness altering, human activity altering, civilization altering plants. Um, They are master plants. 
uh, tobacco, right, is a master mm-hmm. plant, a very sacred master plant, in fact. And whenever I post anything about tobacco, a lot of people be like, I thought tobacco was bad. I'm like, no. And this is sort of the perfect, like, kind of bridge, I think, to say, whether it's master plants, whether it's food, plants are not good or bad. And in indigenous society, master plants is an indigenous term. And I'm not, of course, speaking for indigenous people as a whole, because there are very obviously like many, many, many cultures and civilizations that make up indigenous people. But in general, right, the idea that plants are not things, but beings that are transmitting more than just compounds, you know, they're not just tools, they're not just nutrition, they're not just macros and micros, they are beings that bring a whole energy, right? That we would be told plants and master plants in particular, they're not good and they're not bad. They're powerful. So I love that you said, talk about the power of plants because, you know, what we're seeing in our black and white kind of way of thinking that we like to do, especially in science um, and especially in media, especially in social media is, is this good or is this bad? right? Like, are walnuts good or are they bad? Or almonds yeah. good or are they bad? Is kale good? It's like, is meat good, right? Like all of these things. And everyone wants to say it's either good or bad. And what it comes down to is it's neither good nor bad. It's powerful. How do we as humans engage with the power of plants, with the power of mushrooms? We're not very good, actually, at coming in a nuanced way, in a reverent way to power. And one of the quotes I say in my um in my newest book, in the master plan experience about mushrooms, because I forage, is there are old mushroomers and there are bold mushroomers, but there are no old, bold mushroomers. <laughs> <laughs> and like, it's kind of a catchy little phrase that foragers like to say, but the truth is it really encapsulates that idea of coming with reverence, coming with respect, coming with care, coming with nuance to any part of nature, especially the ones that we're going to consume, because there's always good and bad in everything. And it's really all about the conversation that's literally happening between the food, the mushroom, the psychedelic, you know, the master plant, anything. It's about how are we showing up for that conversation? Yeah. So it's like, you know, kale is a superfood and, you know, it provides all of these benefits. And then we have this like kind of cultural idea that if some is good, more is better. And so then everyone's like packing their blenders full of kale for, you know, a daily kale smoothie. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe we're out of conversation with that plant at that point. You know, maybe that's not the appropriate uh, way to engage with the power of plant, just to stick with the silly kale example. Um, Talk to me more about Mushroom. So you say you forage when right out of the gate. I'm like, well, that sounds scary. (laughs) Yeah. You know, well, this kind of goes to that idea of like, we don't trust ourselves in the natural world. And, um, you know, I know people who won't eat any mushrooms at all, like even from the grocery store, because they're so freaked out by the idea of being poisoned by mushrooms. It reminds me of like some meme I saw that people are like, gosh, I thought I'd be like, dodging quicksand and piranhas so much more in my adult life than I actually did. It's like, you know, I was, I was taught to be afraid of eating any berries, don't eat any mushrooms, don't touch any plants. Like, you know, you could get poison ivy, you could get poisoned, you could. Mm. And, you know, so I started out with foraging. Um, just, I learned 
the mushrooms that have no poisonous lookalikes. So if I find those mushrooms, I know they are edible mushrooms. Like, actually, I should jump up and get like I have this giant puffball in my fridge right now that's like bigger than my head. Um, and that like that mushroom, if it looks like a big white ball that looks like a soccer ball size thing, it cannot be anything but a giant puffball. Right. And so that's definitely an edible mushroom. If it's smaller white um, mushroom that looks like a ball, it it could be something else. Right. So there are these ways that like you start to learn and become familiar and approach again with reverence and respect um, and don't overdo it. Right. Same thing. It's like all about this relationship and coming in a good way. Um, you know, what you were talking about with the kale thing and stuffing the blender with kale and having kale and everything, which I think we all went through that phase in some way. Um, <laughs> I like to some good kale. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but you know, when I was in South America um, learning, one of the things that uh, people from the global north were called often um, by communities there were junkies. And, you know, they didn't mean drugs, although, I mean, I'm sure they also meant drugs, but what they meant was like kind of just taking and using and getting addicted in a sense to like a particular thing and not really considering the relationship, not considering the reciprocity, not considering what we're doing to the communities or to our bodies, et cetera. And I thought that was really interesting. It was very away. It was an awakening moment for me to hear that and really ask myself, like, are there ways in which I operate like that? And how can I come with that more moderate, more reverent approach? So that goes for foraging. That goes for what I eat. It goes for what I grow. You know, like I know when I grow in my garden, like I'm sharing with rabbits and birds and other things. And I know like a lot of it's just going to disappear and I'm going to be like, Ugh! but also I'm like, yep, like, this is a shared experience. Well, I think about that concept of junkie and like, think about like, you know, what's, it's very, it's very common to be like, oh, binge worthy. This show is so binge worthy or I'm so obsessed with this. Like, I'm so obsessed with this. Like, it's just something that is baked into our vernacular now, but there's this, you know, it's very much so a culture of consumers too. I've talked a lot about reciprocity and I'll use this, this podcast as, as an example. We, you know, I do two episodes a week and like some people are just consuming and consuming and consuming all the podcasts with no respect or reverence or thought or consideration behind the effort and the energy and the care and the love and the dedication that goes into producing what we consume. And then, so this can go, go for like, you know, something as simple as listening to the podcast or into the food that we're consuming. It's just like, it's just this like blind march of like consumerism with like the, the reverence has been lost somewhere along the way. And I, I'm curious with food specifically is, do you have any rituals or practices? Um, cause I think we're kind of like coming back to, I, at least I can speak for myself and, you know, some of the circles that I run in, like we were looking for anchoring, grounding rituals. Like we want to be connected back into something bigger than ourselves. And I think rituals are a way to do this. Do you have any rituals? You I mean, you mentioned the garden um, around food that helps you kind of connect to this reverence and put you more back in a recipro reciprocal relationship with what you're consuming. Absolutely. I mean, and I think to your point, you know, I think of Wendell Berry, who said there are um, no unsacred places 
there are only sacred places and desecrated places. And so I always think like when we don't come with reverence, it's just because we have to remember like everything is sacred and it's so amazing. Like anything can be made sacred. Like I just did a little photo shoot the other day and we decorated the stairs to a part of like my porch, basically, that I never, like to my back door, that I never use. We decorated with flowers and made this like gorgeous thing happen there. And, you know, we were all looking at it afterwards. And I was like, this is, we just infused beingness and aliveness into this place. That's like a very forgotten cobwebby part of my house. And we made it into something very magical and alive. And I think that is something, there's not like a prescription on how to do that, but like, There is a way in which, you know, cooking, gardening, going to farmer's markets. I mean, I'm not trying to be precious here, right? Like, I understand we all have to live life and there are ways in which we, you know, grab something from the store and like, we're not always thinking about it. We, we do live in a very fast culture, but finding those ways to slow down, finding those ways to share meals, um, you know, I really am a big fan of like water for chocolate that kind of magical realism mentality. I don't know if you're familiar with that movie or book. It's it's pretty old school. It's like the Gen Xers who listen to this will know, but it's really worth going back and watching like Water for Chocolate. It's um it's based on a beautiful book, but it's a beautiful movie too where the energy of the person who's cooking is infused into the food where literally if she's angry, like everybody's like vomiting, you know, and if she's crying, everyone eats the food and starts like crying, crying. And when she's feeling passionate, like everyone like rips their clothes off and starts like jumping into bed together. Like it's a very um, kind of fun, fantastical way of thinking about the energy that we put into everything, including eating, including food and Um, you know, if we treat it in this very perfunctory way and commoditizing way, then we are going to feel that kind of energy, you know? So um, I do think there are lots of kinds of rituals we can do, even just like lighting candles, you know, and sitting down to a meal and putting our phones and screens away. And I am like certainly as guilty of, you know, not coming in a fully present way as anybody um, at times. But just whatever it is that we need to do to make it feel like we're present in a world that is constantly stealing and competing our attention and making us feel like presence isn't worthy or worthwhile. Um, It's beautiful. I've been really tinkering around with this, like, really, like, appreciation and value, which is, you know, gratitude. We know that gratitude, Mm -hmm. you know, heals our bodies and people can feel that. And it's such an important practice, but I think we've heard it so much that it's sort of like lost its power, its pizzazz, its meaning. And so another thing that I've been thinking about is like really just taking a moment and like, gosh, I really value this. Like putting this shirt on, I just got this shirt. It's so soft. I love this. I love the shirt. I love the color. I'm like, wow, I really value the the, the fact that I can purchase a new item of clothes for, for myself. I, lo- I value the fact that I, I can wear this and feel really good and comfortable in, in it. And just like taking moments to like really value the things that are directly in front of me, which I guess is another way of saying appreciation. Um, but that has been so just like life-giving for me too. And we can definitely bring this into, you know, in, more into our food, I think, is you know, 
placing uh, placing value or recognizing where we place value and kind of just really anchoring into those things. So I'm a big fan of rituals. I think they can help us feel connected, grounded, and anchored, which is so much of what we need right now. My current evening ritual is to make my mellow magnesium drink and listen to a Manifest Your Health meditation. Ned's Mellow Magnesium is a powerful daily magnesium supplement. It's literally my favorite magnesium. It has amino acids, trace minerals that promote memory, mood, brain function, stress response, nerve and muscle health, and sleep. The majority of American adults are deficient in magnesium, which is a mineral that's essential to hundreds of functions in the body. This is one of those nutrients we absolutely burn through during periods of stress, and low magnesium can contribute to even more feelings of stress and anxiety. Mellow also contains GABA and L-theanine, which have anti-anxiety effects. Lavender berry is my favorite flavor, and it is very pretty. Become the best version of yourself and get 15% off Ned products with code FUNK. Go to helloned.com forward slash FUNK or enter code F-U-N-K at checkout. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash F-U-N-K to get 15% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. This one is for my low-carby Barbies. If you're struggling with headaches, muscle cramps, or fatigue on a low-carb diet, you are probably low in electrolytes. This is for two reasons. One is that whole foods, keto, or low-carb diets are low in sodium. When you cut out packaged foods, you basically cut out your main dietary sources of sodium. Also, you excrete more sodium in a carb-restricted state. But the good news is that replenishing electrolytes can really rectify symptoms pretty darn quickly. Element is my personal electrolyte of choice. It's super yummy, has everything you need and nothing you don't. The reality is every single person needs electrolytes, but if you're active or you're on a low-carb diet, you really extra need electrolytes to feel and perform your best. Right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single-serving packets for free with an Element order. It's a great way to try all the flavors or you could share them with a friend. Get yours at drinkelement.com forward slash funk. That is D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com forward slash F-U-N-K. Element offers a no questions asked refund so you can try it risk-free. Part of this is just selfish because I am doing my microdosing journey right now. But I know that this is so much of what your new book is about in this body of work that has been, you know, has been birthed out of you uh, in more recent years. Talk to me more about psychedelics because I, like I said, I really um, felt really resistant to them. Um, I, I understood. I'm like, I understand why people are doing this, but like, I don't want this. This isn't right for me. This isn't the mm-hmm. medicine I need. And I was kind of, you know, the, the thing that changed my mind, <laughs> I guess pun intended, um, I was talking to a friend and a colleague of mine who's super smart and like, I would say a little bit anxious. You know, she's not the bold mushroom forager. Let's just say <laughs> that, you know? <laughs> um, and I she, over the course of a year, I just saw her change. Like she, she had different energy. Like I would read an Instagram post. I'm like, she just had like a higher vibration about her. And when I talked to her, it was like, you know, not like toxic positivity, rose colored glasses, bypassing, but just like, she had like a new outlook on life. And I'm like, 
I'll have what she's having. You know, like, I'm like, what are you doing? Like, what, what's going on? And she's like, well, funny, you should ask. And she told me about this mm-hmm. microdosing experience that she had been on with mushrooms and psilocybin. And I said to her, I'm like, that's amazing and so incredible. I really have a lot of tools at my disposal. And I am thinking that I really want to see what I can do in terms of like an identity shift and like brain rewiring, what I can do with my own devices, kind of just like raw dog, you know, like what can I do without leaning on something else? And when I said that, I realized that so much of what I'm working through is actually accepting support, (laughs) you know, like not being this man on an island. I have to be the hardest worker. I have to do everything myself. It like dawned on me that I'm I'm potentially rejecting this support system for myself. And I'm like, isn't that interesting? And she also gave me another perspective where she's like, you know, you believe so much in quantum biology and that's so much of what you do. How is this any different? You know? And that was the thing that really got to, that shifted my mindset and shifted my, my mentality about this and made me say like, you know, maybe I should try it. And it's been a wonderful experience. So I would love to hear you, you know, you know so much about this. First of all, you're a neurologist, you're an herbalist, and also, you know, you've just been researching a lot about psychedelics. So tell us more. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to just say to your last point, because it's so um, synchronous and in alignment with what I believe, but also what I've learned, you know, the idea of appreciation um, is such a good segue into the topic of, of psychedelics, of master plants. And one of the stories, so I have a chapter, chapter five is all about different master plants, um, and their lore, their history. Like, this is not like dry, you know, dry toast kind of book. Like I, you know, I bring a lot of (laughs) stories to it. And, um, and one of the stories about tobacco, which is universally around the world, one of the most sacred plants considered by every shaman, every indigenous culture considers tobacco to be sacred. Um, One of the origin stories of tobacco is um, the spirit of tobacco invented humans, created humans to honor tobacco. That is why we are here, is literally to honor, appreciate, and show gratitude, right? Um, So isn't that like, right? So beautiful and so interesting to think like, maybe that's our whole reason for being here. And we're not doing the greatest job of that at the moment, but like, what if we could, you know? And I do think that that's part of what this return, let's say, um, right? A lot of people think of psychedelics as something that was like going on in like the fifties and sixties. They don't, a lot of people don't even know there was tremendous amount of very promising research for mental health and other things. And now we're seeing, I mean, almost every institution around the world is researching psychedelics, um, publishing weekly, very groundbreaking articles on major depression, on PTSD, on addiction, on pain syndromes, migraines, cluster headaches, um, you know, all kinds of really difficult to treat conditions. Um, again, going to cellular memory, which I get into a whole conversation about that and and the microbiome and how all of those things can shift, you know, with master plants in particular, which is my main focus. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. We don't have a lot of, we, we can change cellular memory and shift cellular, cellular memory in a lot of different ways. You're absolutely right, right? When you said, I have a lot of tools, you know, um, we do, we do. And like, you don't, we do not need 
And I am not someone, you're not going to find me saying, I think everyone should do psychedelics or take or go to the Amazon. In fact, I don't think most people should go to the Amazon at all. Um, I, of course, was sort of pulled into psychedelics, kicking and screaming. I was going on a on a trip to study with indigenous healers, but I thought I would learn about them, but I was like not interested in consuming them myself, like at all. And they didn't tell us on this trip that that was going to happen, in fact. Um, so surprise to me. Um, <laughs> but it was interesting because it was in Ecuador and the Ecuadorian way is actually like what we would probably consider something in between microdosing and macrodosing. Um, so it's like, altering, but not actually like, oh my God, you're discombobulated and you're out of commission for, you know, seven hours or something like that. So it was very interesting to learn the way that culture does things because of course, as I said in the beginning, we're all about big doses, big sledgehammer approaches to everything in the global North. And even all of the research or a lot of it that's being done is about big doses. Right. And, mm -hmm. and we're seeing incredible results. I mean, you can have one journey you know, with the right support before, during, after. And I always say that because every study that's done is involves professional support. You know, do we actually always need professional support? I mean, probably not, but, um, but that's how the studies are done. So for benefit, like that's what I would recommend, right? If you want to kind of see these sorts of outcomes, but one dose can break people of like lifelong depression that has not responded to anything. Um, can break a tobacco addiction at unprecedented levels, like greater than 60% of people were not after an entire year did not go back. There's no other treatment that exists for, um, you know, and other kinds of addiction too. just really profound shifts that people are experiencing with big doses. Um, and, and microdosing is something, you know, I have um, guided people through microdosing experiences because I see microdosing which is a lot harder to study simply because it doesn't microdosing is a sub psychedelic dose, meaning you're not going to trip. You're not going to be out of commission, right? You know this, but people who are listening may or may not, um, which means you can parent. It means you can go to work. It means you can drive your car and, and be functional and fine, but you'll feel different. It'll alter you in some way, which is like some people feel a little bit of a sense of euphoria. Some people just feel a shift. Some people feel it more the next day, not the day they actually ingest um, because usually it's not every single day, but like every few days or a few days in a row, then not for several days. Um, but what I've seen is it kind of unfolds, first of all, over time. So might be like three months or six months of microdosing, you'll maybe have a kind of experience or a shift that um, unfolds day by day instead of like this big, like, boom, you were like, you know, rocketed out of the sky. And then like, you have to come back and put the pieces back together in a way, not to say that that can't be incredible. And some people have wonderful experiences. You know, my first experience was with ayahuasca and um, it was not wonderful <laughs> at all. No. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, it isn't, especially early experiences, but you know, there always are those people who are like smiling and delighted and happy and you're like vomiting and crying and you're like, God, I hate that person, you know, but um, <laughs> some part of you, but, um, but, you know, the idea is not that this is like always going to be fun and great. It's that you're having these pattern interrupts and you're letting go. I mean, I had a very capital traumatic childhood. So it is not surprising that some of my experiences, my earliest experiences in particular, 
were extremely challenging for me because, you know, like, what do you do when you are a person who's gone through a lot of capital T trauma and then you become a successful person, you know, you lock that stuff up and you, you're like, I'm going to power through. And, you know, like psychedelics are, they don't solve anything. I want to say this. They're not, they're not like pill for the ill at all. They, they shine spotlights. They open portals. You get to look through the window or the door and decide then afterwards, am I willing to walk through that door? You know, you have to then take the action and that's where the support before, during, after of whatever kind I think is super important. And actually, you know, I will say, um, I love microdosing and even quantum dosing, which is something that we've played with, um, which is a vibrational dose. So I grow master plants and that's one of the ways I quantum dose, right? I don't ingest my plants. I just, I grow them, I tend them. And that's like my reciprocal relationship. Um, You know, this is like true herbalist behavior, right? Mm -hmm. So I have a 10 plus year old ayahuasca vine that I grow. It's totally legal to grow. I don't ingest her. Um, I have San Pedro cacti. I have Brugmansia. I have tobacco. I have other plants that I grow and work with. And we created in partnership, essentially a vibrational medicine that we call ceremony in a bottle. And it is a quantum dose of these medicines. And the reason I did it, and this is going to sound, you know, whatever way to people, but, you know, tending plants is a way you learn a lot from them. And like, they transmit a lot to me and I don't have to ingest them. Um, And that's actually been true of a lot of people like, who are ayahuasqueros, the people who run these ceremonies and things is like, once you've been with the plant enough and you have that relationship, you actually don't need to, they don't ingest anymore. They don't really need to ingest very often because they're, they're there as like representatives. They already know what they're there to do. Um, But I got this very strong message, which was why do people think they need to ingest us to experience our medicine, show them another way. And this was many years ago. And I was like, what the heck? does that even mean? <laughs> like, um, And I had to play with it for a long time and kind of turn it over. But I did see when people w- would reach out to me about microdosing before they ever ingested, and maybe they never would ingest, their lives would already start to change. Their lives would already start to shift. And like, I realized they were already in relationship with the mushroom or the plant, right? They already were in that healing, transformative relationship, they didn't even always need to take that next step. Um, And so that convinced me that quantum dosing was something really interesting to explore. And I like it because, and why I was committed to exploring it and trying to bring something forth was because it was sustainable, right? Because we are consumers and we are like wanting to, you know, and with mushrooms, it's a little different in the sense that, you know, they grow pretty readily. But with things like ayahuasca or San Pedro or a lot of the other master plants out there, we are hurting them because of this excitement about psychedelics that we're in right now. Yeah, I um, that's a better concern of mine. Same thing with crystals. I'm like, is do we have an unlimited supply of crystals for everybody all the time? Because we're, we're doing some serious mining for crystals right now. Mm-hmm. And I say that as somebody who does, I love crystals. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I... I, I want to echo what you said. Obviously, you're gonna you're gonna speak into this in a much more 
well-rounded research-backed way um, versus me just have like N equals one over here. Um, But it's my experience has been that the medicine isn't the medicine. It's like, I am the medicine. The medicine is just opening me up to the, to my own medicine within. And I think that that might be like a misconception where it's like, the medicine is doing the work. And it's like, no, you, you, you still are. And from my understanding, this is a question that I have for you, is that it, it um, psilocybin can assist with neuroplasticity. So my, my question and my concern would be, which is great, you know, like that's, that's wonderful. But if we don't have the integration tools, like you said, before, during, after, could we just essentially be using this as a tool to reinforce old patterns. You know, if we're using this as a pattern interrupt, awesome, but we also kind of have to choose a new pattern to kind of install rather than reinforce the old thoughts, beliefs, behaviors, so on and so forth. Like that's where the actual transformation comes from, right? Yes, 100%. So, you know, and we're you're talking about it in this like the neurological physiologic yeah. way and then there's a spiritual way. And I talk about both of those things because that's the language, right? I want to just say, first of all, that N of one, like, you know, in one of the chapters of my book, I start out by talking about how science as it's practiced, modern science, um, which really is a process, a pursuit, it's not an endpoint, um, has made us feel like we can't believe our own eyes, right? And that idea of an N of one, like I, you know, I'm not against big studies, et cetera, but I am very much interested in in N of one studies where we compare ourselves against ourselves, right? Like a treatment because everybody's so individual and this idea that we can't believe our own eyes because it hasn't been shown or that's impossible. Right. I think that's a really important um, place for us to kind of start opening our minds and shifting around what we think about science, first of all, but um, you know, and I think psychedelics or master plants are really part of that. But to your point about plasticity you know, there is this idea of critical periods of plasticity, um, CPPs, which I, I talk about actually in chapter four of my book about this idea of what neuroplasticity means. And, um, you know, what we know is that actually addictive drugs open those window periods, right? Like what we think of as addictive drugs. So like cocaine or even alcohol or others that like, they actually do exactly what you said. They reinforce their use mm. because we get certain like, uh, feedback, neurofeedback from having, you know, whatever the alcohol or the cocaine or the whatever, you know, um, addictive experience. And um, that period of plasticity then reinforces going back for more. And so this is a worry actually about a lot of the psychedelic designer drugs that are out there too, is right. That like pharmaceutical companies are like, Ooh, how can I patent this? How can I make, you know, ayahuasca without the vomiting or psilocybin, but no tripping. Right. But just the plasticity. And actually at a recent conference I went to, um, one of the big researchers on plasticity said, I'm worried we're creating some very addictive drugs, you know, in these designer drug environments, because we think opening those windows of plasticity is always good. Um, but just as, right, like master plants are neither good nor bad, they're powerful, right? It's all in the relationship. Similarly, being in that state of plasticity, neither good nor bad, it is powerful. How do we come? What kind of environment are we creating? And I do think, although we know for a fact that 
a lot of different psychedelics interrupt, they pattern interrupt um, these, you know, ridges that we tend to follow um, that can interrupt things like addiction. There are people who go back again and again and again and again with psychedelics thinking, this is the only way I'm going to get that transmission. This is the only way I'm going to find truth, or this is the only way I'm going to feel that way. Um, because we can do that with anything, right? We, without the right support, without the right integration, as you say, um, right? The real purpose here is honoring, appreciation, being in that place of aliveness, being in that place of connection. And that's where like the dirt cure, my book, the dirt cure and my book, the master plant experience are really all about, you know, how do we shift out of us versus them and into me and we, which is everything that indigenous science shows, everything that quantum science shows is we we are not disinterested observers, right? In the scientific experiment way, we are all active participants in everything. Everything is connected to everything. We are all in relationship all the time. And that is really, I think the purpose of master plants now is to help us see that, but then we have to take the action in our lives to live that way. Yeah. I think it's the action that really cements it in as permanence or <clears throat> really helps us to affect the actual change. And I also appreciate you saying that about the N equals one. I think we've been sort of, we're kind of in a place now where we invalidate people's lived experience if it conflicts with our own beliefs. And I don't think that's a very good place to be, especially in health um, in wellness. Um, mm -hmm. And sadly, where, you know, I think in, in the the, the quest for evidence-based, science-backed research, like sometimes we we miss opportunities for healing, you know? And um, yeah, I think that's a, can, that can be a shame. So this was a beautiful conversation. I am keeping my eye on the time. I see that we're at the hour mark. I don't want to chew up too much of more of your time, but this was wonderful. There was definitely moments where I could feel into the energy of what you were saying, and it just felt mm. so especially with the quantum dosing of the plants. I, I guess my last question for you would be, is there any, if somebody had kind of like a visceral reaction to what you were saying in a good way, <laughs> we could have bad visceral reactions, but kind of, I just felt very calm and grounded. Like, oh, I'm, I'm hearing something like that's really important. Um, how would we begin to, what would be the path to kind of entering into that relationship with these plants? Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think the first thing to do, like, and to your point about how you felt resistant to the call, and then you felt ready. Mm. I think, first of all, there's no shoulds. You absolutely must listen to that call. So if you're hearing this, and you're like, this isn't for me, that's completely fine. One day it might be and it never and maybe it never will be. And that's also fine. Um, but I would say start by like, picking up a book or doing a little research or even looking at pictures, like literally start with that quantum energy where you're just starting to interact with the energy of the plants and see what it feels like. And then, you know, um, you can come, I have a lot of free resources on my website. So people can go look at drmaya.com. They can look at quantum drops. They can look at my book. My book is like, open it to any page and you'll be good. You know, you'll be able to like find something there. Um, but there are 
a lot of ways to engage without ever even really having to ingest or get on that plane and fly to Peru or whatever it is like, um, and just trust the process a little bit, be, be, um, be reverent, right? Take it slowly and you'll know, um, you'll, you'll hear the call if you come with that attitude. I love that. And we will be sure to link up to all of your resources, your website, your books um, in the show notes. And I, I just am still laughing to myself about how you said your book is not dry toast because talking to you and being in, you know, in conversation with you, I'm like, there's nothing dry about you. You're just like, you're rich. You know what I mean? It's like, there's like a richness to you. I feel like I could like reach out and touch the texture of you, which is like, you know, the exact opposite of dry toast. So I think this was, this was an awesome conversation. I super appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much. And that was the nicest compliment I've gotten in a long time. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you got something from today's show, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.